Hello, I'm Alex Mansfield, the host of Manny Talk Shooting, and welcome to another episode. This is the shooting podcast where I talk to individuals all across the shooting industry. We'll talk competition, self-defense, concealed carry. If you like this content, check out our YouTube channel, Manny Talk Shooting. And without further ado, let's get to this episode. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Manny Talk Shooting, the shooting podcast where I talk to individuals all across the shooting industry because I can, because I want to, because you come and listen to it every single week without further ado let's get to today's show sponsor the sponsor of this show the best sponsor the only sponsor we've ever had but we love him still go fast don't suck go check out build dude at uh, go fast don't suck.net get your match jerseys your banners your dry fire stickers your memes because you can't live a day without a go fast don't suck meme so go check them out without further ado let's get to today's guest today's guest is mr jason clark jason how are you doing today sir Hey, man, you're doing fantastic. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. And what a, what a great plug for Bill and Go Fast, Don't Suck, man. Yeah, we're, where would we be without him? Uh, we'd be slightly less entertained and we would have ni- not as nice things. <laughs> Definitely less entertained. That much is for sure. That is absolutely for sure. So, yeah. So, Jason, thank you for coming on today. It's been a one in the making. Uh, we've kind of had to figure out schedules, um, but it works because I'm on vacation this week. For anyone who cares, this is actually recorded late July 2022. But I don't really think you care but who cares? Anyway, so Jason, who are you and how did you get into shooting? Yeah, so my name is Jason Clark. Uh, I live in the Atlanta, Georgia area. I'm a PCC super uh, for the most part, uh, Grandmaster, been, been been a Grandmaster for about a year now. Um, I just love shooting rifles, man. That's, uh, I, I was not uh, very different from a lot of the guys in competitive shooting. Like, uh, you know, listen to JJ Ricaza on, on Brian Conley's podcast. You know, he's been shooting since he was like nine years old. Um, I was only introduced to handguns about 12 years ago. So not a, not a new shooter or a relatively new shooter in, in terms of the, the big picture. Definitely wasn't competition focused out of the box. It was just, uh, you know, I was an adult. It's like, hey, having a gun for self-defense seems like the, the thing to do. A buddy invited me out to the range. I started shooting and uh, uh, just kind of took off from there. I had a competitive spirit inside of myself. So after a couple of years of just standing around shooting on the square range, uh, found competition and that was history, man. Um, shot a couple different sports, started out in uh, kind of an IDPA style match. Uh, it was actually called GADPA, which was an offshoot of IDPA here locally in Georgia. Uh, so I shot that for two or three years, then got hooked up with USPSA and uh, um, been shooting ever since. Excellent. So when you were shooting, what, GADPA? Yeah. What, uh, what pistol were you rocking at that point? Yeah, so I've always kind of been a Glock guy, right? I live in Atlanta. Glock's a local company, uh, so definitely drawn to them. Uh, I'll tell you this, though. Glock wasn't the first gun I shot. The first gun I ever shot was a Springfield Armory XD subcompact. So, you know, like the worst of the worst when it comes to what I feel, with, right? Yeah, I feel sorry for you. I mean, that just sounds when, horrible. Like, I mean, first off, as a new shooter, like a subcompact gun is like the worst thing you can shoot, right? Because it's going to be snappier. Your grip is going to be worse. Uh, it's just harder to shoot overall. And, and you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I think of quality, Croatia is not the first thing that pops into my mind. Um, so it was an experience. And uh, then I went to a range like maybe two weeks after I shot that gun the first time, tried a Glock 19, and then boom, rest was history. Glock it was. Um, being a local, you know, having them as a local company where they actually have like a tech support area where you can just drive over and you need a, something replaced or want them to just check out the pistol they'll do it for you while you wait or, or they did pre-covid at least i'm not sure if they're doing that anymore but uh the glock's just always been a fit for me so i've owned dozens upon dozens of glocks as many gun owners have mm-hmm. oh yeah i mean 
it's kind of nice you know glock being right there you can all you know because you can get a new frame if you fuck up your frame from glock you can get like a new one for like 150 bucks or something like that it's like crazy i think it's 100 bucks but yeah like if you uh you know your dog chews it up or you uh bust out the old dremel on the soldering iron to do your uh latest greatest script job yeah you can go get it repaired pretty or replaced pretty easily yeah so did uh, were there always a lot of uh glocks at local matches then I mean, mostly. So Gadpo being like an IDPA style match, it was pretty much an even mix of like, you had a ton of Glocks, a few CZs, just like you do in USPSA. And then of course, a lot of 1911s or other single action only type guns like that. Mm -hmm. Now, um, was there a lot of GFSS matches around there too, since Glock was so close? There are, yeah. A lot of the indoor ranges host them. Uh, My home club, Riverbend Gun Club, hosts one of the largest events outside of the Gunny Challenge uh, here locally. But believe it or not, Never shot a GSSF match, not one. But you can win Glocks. Like you always need more. That's 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 what I hear, right? Um, I had tons of Glocks, and uh, actually, uh, for for about four years now, my wife works at Glock, so um, I've got tremendous access to Glocks. Should I should I need them? Oh, that's pretty cool. Then that's pretty cool. I never understood dudes that just like had guns stacked up in the safe that they'd never shot, but I do now. <laughs> right? Exactly. Who who, <laughs> who doesn't need more? But yeah, so. With uh, Gadpa, you were shooting Glock and whatnot, and you went to then USPSA. Um, What made you really fall in love with the PCC, though? Yeah, so going back before guns, something I've done since I was was in high school, I was probably 15, 16 years old, as I I got into competitive paintball. I had some buddies that took me out to shoot paintball. uh, So we just like played in the woods like like people do. And then, uh, again, competitive spirit burned, and uh, I got into competition paintball so like at a semi-professional level I actually traveled the country just like USPSAers do today so traveled around the country shooting events at uh, kind of you know kind of like their version of area matches uh, so I did that for five six seven years something like that I don't even remember but uh, the majority of my 20s uh, was spent traveling the country now a paintball gun is not like a real gun but uh, it is kind of like shooting a long gun right because you got the little air tank that comes off the back so it's kind of like a shoulder stock so um, running around with a with, with, with a gun in my hand is something I've done for, you know, the better part of two decades, and it just felt natural. Mm-hmm. So competitive paintball, you're talking about, I think I remember watching ESPN, like they'd be in a little court, essentially, with big yeah. blow-up things. Is that what it was? Yep. or? Was- yeah, actually. So when I first started playing back in the early 90s, a lot of it was still in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they came out of the woods, and they started, you know, they just take, like, an open field and, like, mow it out, and they build, like, you know, barricades out of plywood and stuff like that with barrels on top and, and things of that nature. Uh, but yeah, in the very late nineties, like 98 to 99, it kind of progressed completely out of the woods from a competitive standpoint. And it went to uh, either the inflatable barricades uh, or they did something called hyperball, which was like corrugated uh, drain piping. And they would like build courses um, out of that stuff. Um, that made it, you know, obviously you said you saw it on ESPN. So it brought a little bit of commercial appeal because you could actually see what people were doing versus running around in the woods in camouflage. Mm-hmm. And uh, from a competitive equity standpoint, it made it so the fields could be perfectly symmetrical, right? They were flat, uh, everything was mirror imaged. So it was all just game plan strategy and that type of stuff. You didn't have terrain and elevation and things of that nature that could make it unbalanced depending upon you know which end of the field you started on. Mm-hmm. Now, do you miss kind of doing that kind of stuff? I, you know, so it, it's funny you say that because the guys I, I played panel with, uh, you know, I, I've had a couple of stints. So I played from, so when I was in high school, for so from 95 to 98, uh, moved to Georgia, started playing competitively in 98 and played that way through around 2004, 2005, um, and then stopped, 
did a whole bunch of nothing in my late twenties and then got back into it with all my buddies. Cause like, you know, the unfortunate thing is when you, in the, the best time for you to play is in your youth, right? You're faster, you're younger, got more mobility, but what you don't have is money to travel around and do all this stuff. Right. So financially it's hard to keep a team together uh, unless you got sponsorships and stuff like that, just like in USPSA. So that kind of, that's kind of what killed it early on. And then with a bunch of the same guys, uh, you know, around 2012, we got back together again, played for about three or four years. So from 2012 to 15, um, basically leading right up to me starting USPSA, um, the challenges were different through, right? Cause like we're all in our thirties at that point, we have money, but what we don't have then is time. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of parallels to what we do in USPSA and other shooting sports. It's uh, it's a balance between time, money, and uh, of course your level of commitment and what you want to do with it. But mm-hmm. uh, I do kind of miss it, but what I don't miss is trying to keep a team together, right? So like, uh, you know, a typical team of guys is going to be anywhere. It depends what what type of sport exactly you're playing, what, what version, but uh, anywhere from eight to 12 guys you've got to manage. And that just gets to be a logistical nightmare when you have people that all have different priorities in life. Um, the number of events I've played in like torrential downpour rain, never fun. Um, so one thing I like about USPSA and kind of being, being a solo entity, if I want to, you know, if I wake up in the morning for a club match and it's a torrential downpour, I can just roll over in bed and not shoot that day. And nobody's mad at me, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, you, you bail, bail on 10 of your buddies to play paintball. You got some, got some explaining to do the next time you see them. Yeah, exactly. I definitely understand that, that one for sure. But yeah, so that's kind of cool now. Uh, da, da. oh well I, I lost that train of thought it's okay though so you've been shooting pcs for the longest time you've been shooting like custom build guns right like you built them yourself like parts guns how yeah so like the very first ar-15 i ever bought was like a smith and wesson sport whatever way back when i first started shooting guns so 2012 maybe mm-hmm. um that's the only factory built gun i've ever owned so beyond that um I just, you know, you, you take that gun, your first gun, and you start upgrading it. I don't like this. I do like this. I want it to do this or feel this way. And uh, that's just kind of always been in me. So, like, that that first, very first gun was was so customized. Like, really, the only things left at the end of the day was the receiver and the barrel, right? So, with, you know, there's a lot of fantastic guns out there. JP is one of the prominent ones in USPSA for, for competition. But, like, you know, most of the dudes at the top level – you know, unless they're like a, a, a high level sponsored brand rep, like they're not shooting that gun as is. They're taking it, they're taking out the buffer system and going to a hydraulic. They're taking out a trigger for, for their trigger preference. And they're just replacing all these parts on a $2,000 gun. And that just really always like drove me insane to spend that kind of money on something. And then to dump 20, 30, 40% of that, that gun's value back into it in custom parts. So um, I was always a big fan of just taking, taking stuff that I've learned through the years, what parts and pieces I like get them together, get the level of performance that I want and make it, make it my own, you know, the handguard I like, the trigger I like, the buffer system I like, and, and make that gun do exactly what I want it to do. Has being a tinkerer like that bitten you in the ass before though? Oh yeah. If I, if I total turd guns for <laughs> sure, like stuff that would go bolt action in the middle of the match. And you know, that that's part of the learning process. If you're going to be a tinker, you're absolutely going to have stuff that doesn't work. And the unfortunate thing is no matter how much you test it and practice with it and stuff like that, usually things like that always like to rear their head at a match. So um, yeah, I think the last time that happened was maybe the, the spring or not spring winter, even like January, February of maybe 2021 was the last time that had happened. Uh, I'd actually just come, I, I, I shot a blowback gun forever that I, that I built from mostly tack on parts for a while, got lured over to a SIG MPX and shot that for a little more than a season and just didn't do well with that gun from a cleaning and maintenance perspective. 
I like to shoot guns. I don't like to clean them. The MPX was a fantastic performer, but uh, I found, especially as it got to high round counts, when it, when it got to like, you know, 14, 15,000 rounds after that first year of use, um, no amount of cleaning, no amount of parts replacements, you know, springs and things like that would ever get that gun back shooting the way it was when it was brand new. So mm -hmm. as much as I really enjoyed it, it just wasn't the gun for me and uh, it had to go. So I came back to, to a direct blowback gun, AR9, and uh, the first couple of iterations of that gun weren't, weren't so well. I don't know if it was tolerance stacking or, or just, uh, you know, parts that just really weren't meant to play well together, but like it would shoot great for a while. Every, you know, when I, when I say it, you know, it's hurt, I don't mean like it's just not working at all. I mean, like it's got just random malfunctions, failure to eject, failure to feeds after, you know, two, three, 400 rounds, just enough that you'll see it at a big match, but not so much that it's easy to track down. You can go out, you know, because you can go out for a practice day and shoot several hundred rounds and have zero malfunctions. And, and you know, of course, with the ammo and primer crunch of these days, that's an expensive, uh, expensive venture. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, I don't, I, I can't remember a lot of people other than probably Lena who shoots a MPX at the high level. Lena uh, and Brian Harrington are the two names that come to mind. Uh, I know Brian, for example, he's got at least three or four MPXs and, and who knows what kind of deal Lena's got in terms of uh, how often she's getting replacement guns. But if you have that kind of hookup, I think the MPX is a fantastic gun. It's a little heavy for what it does, but you know, all that's the, the piston system and all that jazz, but uh, really good shooting guns. Uh, they're just not for people that shoot really high volumes and don't like take meticulous care of their gear. Right. Yeah. I think there's uh, an extensive part of us who are just like clean it enough. So it doesn't fuck up. Then, yeah. and like, I don't know, have, what's the last time you've had a gun be like perfectly spotless for more than a minute. <laughs> just the, the new guns that are sitting in my safe. That's it. Exactly. Right. Um, exactly. You know, and that's also part of the equation too, right? If you're, if you're a high volume shooter or any kind of heavy, heavy user, you want to know what your gear can do before it does get to that failure point. Right. So you want to know if, you know, folks that are shooting open guns, they, you know, they, they know the mags are a failure point. So they clean them between, you know, every time they hit the dirt, they clean them. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the end of every match, they clean all of them, whether they touch the dirt or not. And I, you just, you, you have to, through trial and error, find out where that breaking point's going to be. So, you know, if I can shoot 5,000 rounds out of my blowback PCC before something is so clogged up that it just won't cycle or that it won't go completely into battery, I want to know that. So I can, you know, if I ever have to push that gun to its limits, I have complete faith that it's going to, going to carry through oh absolutely yeah you, you you that's an that's an essential like part of competition right like i don't know i don't like cleaning guns so i'm like yeah. well let's push it till it dies but um so now what you're with your new fancy shirt you're wearing you're what shooting at a da vinci now i am so yeah after after the kentucky section match uh about a month ago um some conversations started there were some opportunities to team up with, with Da Vinci. Uh, obviously I've seen the guns around. Uh, some of their team members like Mike Seifert, Corey Shield, um, have had some success with the guns. So obviously, uh, you know, I know they're not total, total lemons, right? So there's gotta be something to it. And then several years ago, and actually where I first saw the name was with Tom Castro started shooting their guns a couple years ago before he moved over to carry optics mostly. So, um, you know, Tom is a fierce competitor and I know he's not gonna run some gear that's uh, suboptimal. He wants uh, every advantage he can get, just like the rest of us. So um, they'd always caught my eye, but I was never willing to put down the gun that I built uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. But once we started having some conversations and I started talking to David uh, down there at DaVinci and kind of saw the business model that he runs where, yeah, he's got his receivers and he makes all that stuff in-house, but like the guns are basically, I don't say hand-built because it's an AR-15, right? He's not like fitting pieces together necessarily, but, you know, if you want 
this barrel, you know, a, a standard barrel profile or lightweight, or you want a side charger, or you want to run a shield buffer or a JP buffer or, or whatever. Uh, if you've got preferences on some of the major working components of the gun, he's got like a, a you know sort of a build list on his website built in there where you can pick the pieces and parts that you like. And it just so happened for me that like the, the options that he offered ticked all the boxes of, of what, you know, if I was building a gun from, from scratch, it had all the options that I wanted. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Now, did you go with the shield buffer or did you stick with, well, you have like a JP in there? Great, great question. So uh, I am currently experimenting with the shield system. Um, I have, I, I've had the gun now for about three weeks, maybe put around 2,500 rounds through it. Um, shot what, two, two matches, three, three matches with it. I shot back to back mat club matches this weekend. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll say that the tuning capabilities, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but it's got um, multiple little holes that you can put different springs and it comes with two, 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 two spring weights of, uh, for the roller. There's a heavy spring and a light spring and you can do those in any configuration that you like. So it can be, you know, just one heavy spring in position three, just one heavy spring in position one. Um, light, heavy, light, you know, so you basically can tune it to whatever your load is. He also includes two action springs. So like, I think there's a three pound and a five pound action spring and like the normal AR spring, like a carbine spring is like 10 or 11 pounds or something like that. So it's really lightweight. Um, but you can tune it effectively anything from like sub minor, you know, steel challenge loads. Like if you want to shoot 90 power factor steel challenge loads, or if you're shooting factory ammo, which in a normal, like, you know, 14 and a half to 16 inch PCC, that's pushing major power factor. It's getting up there to 160, 165, uh, you know, thereabouts. And with all the different combinations that they have, you can tune it out to whatever you like. So um, I'm intrigued mm -hmm. is what I'll say about that buffer system. It's a really ingenious system. Um, you know, obviously the MP5 is uh, highly regarded for its smoothness when it comes to shooting not so much on the trigger and, you know, it's obviously a very old gun in terms of how long it's been around, but like in terms of shooter experience, it's phenomenal. And I think the shield buffer lets you do that with an AR-9 to, to, to a great extent. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see, we'll see how it, how it works out. I'm still, we're still in the, uh, the dating phase. Mm -hmm. I'll say that, but uh, my go-to buffer prior to that, what I'd shot for two years is actually the Blitzkrieg, the hydraulic buffer. I shoot their 5020 SS, the short stroke buffer. Um, so I've got, you know, 20,000 plus rounds on that system in my other home build gun and really like it. So if for whatever reason, the shield system doesn't work out, which so far so good, um, that would be what I would fall back to. Oh, okay. Now, what do you think of uh, the side charger? So again, that's another thing. Hey, I'd never used it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and like, there's a lot of different types of side chargers. You've got like the Foxtrot mic version where they have like a folding non-reciprocating version, um, the DaVinci method is, is obviously much simpler. They just mill a slot on the side of the receiver and the charging handle bolts directly into the, in, into the, uh, the bolt right? or screws in directly to the bolt. Um, I'll say this, so like this, the second match I ever shot with a gun uh, was over at CMP and they still had some of the classic nationals stages on the ground. And uh, there's a video where, uh, so like the handgun start position I think was handgun in the box, magazine on your, your, your initial loading device on top of the box. And for PCC, obviously we can't fit in the box. So they flip flop that. And we put our mag in the box, gun on the barrel and the charging of the gun, the, the unloaded start, totally smooth, man. Between the, the five pound action spring of the shield buffer plus that side charger made it super easy. And considering I had like, you know, cause I, I haven't been out practicing with the side charger specifically or specifically doing any unloaded starts with a gun. Um, it felt very natural. 
Mm-hmm. Awesome. Now I'm curious because I don't think I've actually looked that far or that close at a DaVinci yet. Is the fact that do you have to unscrew then the the charging handle to then break the gun apart? Yeah. So if you want to pull the the, the bolt out of the gun, you do have to unscrew it. And uh, they, you know, the first time I took it apart, it's they, they've done some sort of thread locker that kind of it's not like Loctite, you know, like blue Loctite when you break it loose, it's toast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more like a Vibratite or something like that where you can unscrew it and it's kind of gummy, so that way the thing doesn't work out on you. Or at least mine is. Uh, when I took it out and put it back in, it didn't require any more, uh, any, any additional uh, thread sealing on there. And it's been rock solid for thousands of rounds. Awesome. That's pretty cool. So uh, you all, what well, you're also what running MBX mags, right? Like full, full builds. Oh, well, look, look at all that money. Look at it. Yeah, I know, right. Can't, can't hide money. Uh, so yeah, actually the uh, MBX mags, I've been using them for, Actually, just about a year. Uh, the Kentucky match, for whatever reason, has been like the, the 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 worst match for me to shoot in terms of gear. So in 2020, that's when my Sig MPX started having problems. It's very first problem. And then in 2021, I had problems with Glock OEM mags, specifically their 24 round mag, which is kind of like a new intermediate size that they did. I don't know if you've seen that. It's not it's not 140. It's not 170. It's just like they picked a random number of bullets. But I happen to just like the length for PCC in terms of what I carried on my belt to load to, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't like to load to the big stick. So I got those, right? And uh, there was an unloaded start stage at Kentucky. Actually, it was my very first stage of the match. And uh, I had a malfunction. And when I, what I figured out is like, on the, I don't know how familiar you are with Glock mags, but like the steel tube bends around and like they have these fingers that kind of interweave together and they like spot weld them. Yep. Well, they use the same spring in that 24 round mag that they use on the big stick. So like it's, I forget the number of coils, but I think it's like a 19 coil spring or something like that. Mm-hmm. So those 24 round mags apparently are just ridiculously oversprung. And what happened is like the, those welds actually started to like kind of bow out and, and do something like that. Caught the follower and I had a malfunction like, you know, three rounds into a, in, into a match. So I was like, man, when I figured out what that was, I was like, I'm going to do it. And I already had MBX mags, right? I already had a big stick, had phenomenal results with it. But uh, I went to them full time. So I use the MBX mags. I use the big six for the PCC. I carry 170s on my belt to reload to. And uh, I even do the 140s for my carry optics clock. High roller there. But hey, I mean, what, you find what works and you use it, right? Like, that, absolutely. It, it's like you don't, you don't change with like the recipe, right? It's like if a built, like if a custom builder tells you, well, this is what you use, right? You kind of stick sure. with their recipe to the most sure. part and be like, I ain't fucking with it, you know? Because then, then, then it's on you. If you fuck with it enough, it's on you, not the builder. <laughs> so many people cheap out on gear or don't replace springs or followers or what have you. And like, you know, okay, I went out and bought this mag. It's really expensive. It's $150. Guess what? That's a single major match entry fee. Mm-hmm. Like, is it worth throwing a match away over uh, a component of that item? Yeah, like a not $20 spring, maybe. Not, not for me, it's not. So springs and followers get replaced regularly. Firing pins in the PCC get replaced regularly. Um, you know, just part of what you do when you're a, a competitor that doesn't want to lose because of your gear. Right. Well, especially when you're at the top level, right? Like that's, that's definitely a uh, thing you want to think about. Like the $20 you're going to spend here and there isn't going to, it could break your match if you don't replace it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's easy to ignore that stuff until you break it. And again, that goes back to running your gear until it breaks, figure out what, what those intervals are and work within the confines that the gun tells you it's happy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, um, You've been switching optics too, haven't you? Um, yeah. So I, I so uh, you're talking about for the PCC specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I switch a lot of optics on various platforms. 
Um, yeah, so for about, actually the whole time I've, since I was shooting the MPX, so for almost three years now, uh, I've been running an EOTech uh, on my, as my main optic on the PCC and came, came to be like, as many things do in a, in a healthy debate online. Uh, so mm -hmm. I was actually in like a, it's like a local buy, sell trade forum uh, or just an outdoor forum. But one of the primary uses is to sell gear and got into a bay, you know, a guy like, like every, every page on Facebook or wherever you're talking, even USPSA gear, what optics should I get for my PCC? Right. So everybody chimes in with their experience of, you know, here's what I've got. Here's, here's what you should get. This is why I like it and that type of stuff. And the typical recommendations were hollow sun 510C. It's a very popular optic. And, and honestly, it's a great optic. And for the money, it's hard to beat. But uh, a, a random guy came on, came into the chat and he was like, hey, why, why, don't, why don't more people use EOTech? And this was like maybe a year, less than a year even after they had their big fiasco with like the uh, thermal shifting of the uh, reticles and stuff like that from the dudes that were like jumping out of planes at 20,000 okay. feet and landing in the desert and that 100 degree temperature swing was causing point of impact uh, issues. So I was like, well, there's that. And the battery life stinks, right? Everybody knows that. EOTechs stink when it comes to battery life. So I'm like, those are two big reasons. And then the guy shot me a PM. And uh, as it turns out, he was actually like one of the local reps here in the Southeast for EOTech. And he, he was like, hey, uh, I think you'll like this. I think you'll see some advantages to it. And he basically just sent me an optic for free. He's like, here, give me your address. I'll send it to you. You can shoot it for as long as you like. Shoot it for a week, shoot it for a month, shoot it for a year. And when you're done with it, um, you can either send it back to me, no charge, you know, just thanks for trying it out. Or if you like, decide you like it, I'll sell it to you for a price that, you know, don't, don't basically don't tell anybody like a, a ridiculously right. low price. And uh, um, it certainly didn't hurt my game. I'll say that mm -hmm. um, as a lot of shooters do. Uh, I notice you're wearing glasses. I don't know if you suffer from astigmatism like I do. Uh, I wear contact lenses. So like when it comes to red dot optics, like there's, I don't get, it doesn't matter what MOA it is to me. It's, it's going to be like a 14 MOA starfish and asymmetrical at that. Right. So it's, it's really hard to aim and you just kind of, you know, figure it out. Uh, there's a few optics that are better than others, but one thing I found with the EOTech and specifically that kind of holographic projection that it does, uh, it produced the clearest reticle uh, of anything I've ever shot. And uh, there were some added, I also shoot the one that, that they call the donut of death, right? So it's like a one MOA dot with a 65 MOA circle around it. And that circle 65 MOA at some of the very common distances that we shoot in USPSA, like seven yards, 15 yards, 25 yards, paints the A zone, the C zone and the width of the target perfectly at some of those common distances that we shoot at. Um, so that's why I'm a big fan of the holographics and specifically those circle dot reticles. Now to your point, actually got my gun here. Um, one of the ones I've been trying is actually the Vortex Huey. Uh, so their UH-1 optic, which is basically like an EOTech clone, if you will, does basically, you know, it's, it's in terms of uh, measurements, it's, it's nearly identical in terms of what the reticle does. But one of its key differences is instead of just having a circle with like little hash marks at the, the, the top and left and right, it has like a little triangle at the base of the unit. So at that six o'clock position, it's got a triangle, which is like a, a, a close quarters zero. If you will. So at seven to 10 yards, you know, if you, if you do like a normal 25, 50 yard zero on the optic, that little triangle is actually a seven to 10 yard point of impact. So for very close targets uh, for a PCC, you got to contend with height over bore. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a nice advantage because I can, number one, you, you get shooting enough and you just instinctively know the holdover. But this also gives me a visual reference that if I put that triangle, um, you know, on a, uh, a zone of a head box with a tight no shoot, I'm catching it every time, getting those A's.
Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Now, have you ever thought about using a prism, like a prism site with due to your astigmatism? So, you know, I, obviously it's going to give some of the same advantages uh, of the EOTech and, and the Vortex Huey is that it's, it's, uh, it's got, usually those have etched reticles. It's more of a holographic projection. You also have the advantage that the reticles there if the battery ever dies. Um, but I have, except for defensive guns, I'm not, you know, most of those, those uh, prism sites are like the, the 20 millimeter or 30 millimeter tubular sites. Mm -hmm. And I just like the bigger field of view um, on the larger optics. Gotcha. Makes sense though. Now, um, I have definitely had um, issues, you know, with our astigmatism. I like, doesn't matter. It looks kind of funny, but I've noticed the bigger the dot size, the crisper mm. for my eyes, the reticle is. So like an eight or a, like even at a five, it's a lot crisper than like a three or a two. And then now that I've gotten an eight for my soon to be open gun, that thing is like super crisp, super small. It doesn't seem that big. Sure. I mean, the less you turn up the optic, the less it's going to bloom. And, and you know, it's going to bloom for people without astigmatism, I presume. Uh, you know, obviously, I don't have personal experience with that. But, uh, you know, the lower intensity the dot is on, the crisper it's going to appear for anybody. So, um, yeah, I think there's some advantage to that. There, there's obviously dudes on both both camps. There are guys that are like, you know, one, one MO, there's, there's guys shooting one M MOA RMRs. Um, you know, obviously there's a huge prevalence of like three to three, 3.25 MOA guns or, or dots like with RMRs and, and some of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. I'd say six is probably one of the more popular sizes for competitive shooting. But uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting when you get into some of the larger dot sizes, because for what we do, it, it's certainly not going to hurt you. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's definitely not going to hurt you. The only thing is like, like if it's super distant shots, but I mean, like maybe at a PCC max, that really doesn't matter because it's a PCC and it's built for longer distance, but yeah, well, so. you, you say that actually, let me stop you right there, because this is actually a hot point of contention for me. Um, you know, there, there's obviously big debate because we had the, the, the big the, the, the big four nationals match that got broken down into other matches. Right. Mm -hmm. And everybody starts like redhead stepchilding PCC if it should get paired with this division because of this and this division because of that. I find it very interesting that at local local matches, state matches, section matches and area matches, nobody seems to complain about everybody shooting together. Everybody has fun. The stages are challenging, but all of a sudden we get to nationals and like, whoa, PCC should be out here shooting hundred yard shots and all this other stuff. Um, that is not the game of, of, of PCC and USPSA. Let, let's, let's look at the stats there. At the end of the day, it's nine millimeter, right? So it's the mm -hmm. same minor scoring that a carry optics gun is shooting. Uh, for the most part, unless people are shooting just factory ammo and a 16 inch gun, the velocities are quite similar. You know, I'm shooting 135 power factor, give or take. Um, so an open gun is actually going to be better suited to shoot hundred yard shots in my PCC because of bullet drop and things like that. Just because, you know, from pure velocity perspective. Yeah. I have a shoulder stock and that makes it more stable, but the PCC game is in my opinion, is, is net, not about long shots. Mm -hmm. It is about shooting fast, shooting accurately and maneuvering, you know, a seven or eight pound gun and a tight course of fire that is generally more geared towards handgun shooting. Now there are some stages where there are some, distance options where a PC shooter may, may take a shot, you know, a, a cross base shot at 35 yards where a handgun shooter is going to get a lot closer. But um, in my perspective, that is just the, the, the sign of a good stage. It has mm -hmm. options based on your division. You know, guys that have optics are going to take longer, riskier shots. Guys with iron sights are going to generally get closer. Guys that are shooting irons and low cap, they're going to do whatever they can do to minimize makeup shots. So it's all just part of the game, part of the division. Mm -hmm. I look at PCC as an open minor with a stock that just makes it more competitive. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be the type of person that looks at the combined scores for a match, which as we all know is not the right thing to do, we're all just, you know, if that's the case, 
PCC or open, pick your poison, we're all cheating. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just different games, right? Open is about going fast, having a reasonable number of Charlies to, to, you know, because of the points advantage there. And, you know, if you can go really fast, you can shoot looser. PCC is, you know, it's kind of the same game. It's about going fast, but there are so many people that can do it accurately at that speed. It's about accuracy and precision and more importantly, maneuvering the gun. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Now, now that you mentioned um, the big four splitting up, how would you have, uh, if you were made that decision, wh- who, what division would you put PCC with? I would have left optics with optics and irons with irons personally. Um, okay. So there, we think the same way. So okay. yeah, there, there's no, spe- there's no specific other, you know, um, you put two minor divisions together, you put two, uh, two other divisions, it could be minor or major. So that's kind of a wash. Um, but the other thing, you know, when when they made the split, they kind of touted it as we're gonna we're gonna split this up based on the the number of people signed up to maximize capacity. But if you look at the signups, that's not at all what happened because Race Gun was sold out almost immediately, and PCC in production, you know, e- even today uh, have you know over 100 slots available or about 100 slots available. So, um, you know, not to mention that a lot of the sponsored shooters or even just top you know people that do it regularly. That shoot, you know, if they shoot an Infinity or they shoot an Atlas or whatever, they're probably shooting open and limited. So it would have gave, given those folks a chance to shoot two matches instead of picking one or the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't care uh, that they split it this way. I, I think you know, just like Carry Optics and PCC shooting together last year, everyone I've spoken to really enjoyed that match. They thought it was challenging in various ways for the different divisions, and on the whole, it was just a good match. And that's what it's all about, right? You challenge divisions in different ways because they all have different capabilities in terms of the optics, capacity, uh, scoring, and you know, a good match is going to be competitive no matter what division you're shooting. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Especially just don't look at the overall because that's silly. I mean, unless you are, unless your goal is to absolutely not be the last competitor on match day. I mean, that's, sure. like, that's like the last one. But um, you know, in addition, one one last thing on that, it's like you know, you say, oh, I got you got a rifle at a at a, at a at a pistol match pistol match right but like if if people are of equal ability um open is going to beat pcc every time and if open is not winning it's because you have a subpar competitor uh of of all the majors that i've won uh in pcc uh you usually just barely crack into the top 10 so i think like maybe fifth or sixth is the highest in the combined results i've ever been at a major even winning the match in pcc because when I have other open, you got open grandmasters out there shooting with major scoring and guns that are generally more maneuverable. And that's a favorable attribute on more than half of the stages across a 10 or 12 stage match. They should beat me every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, major power factor, right? I mean, major, major. I'd love PCC, you know, in, in, in regards to major power factor, I would be super cool if we had PCC major with 170 millimeter max. Don't you I speak? Someone would be like, someone would be like, no, I don't want. That. Yeah, I may be alone in that because I can actually reload a gun on the clock really well, even a PCC. But I think that would be really interesting. It would be honestly, it'd make it make things more interesting, right? It make it would make them have to reload during a stage instead of just I'm gonna have this giant stick out the bottom and be like, yeah, I'm gonna. It's kind, it's kind, kind of like it's like it's like single stack major versus minor, right? You got a capacity variance. Mm-hmm. And uh, those minor guys don't have to reload as often, and they're at a scoring disadvantage. Doesn't mean you can't win. You can win, but you got to be getting them alphas. Oh, absolutely. You got to always get them alphas. Like, even, yeah. More alphas, more better, right? So, always. So, currently, you said you're a GM. Now, 
when you originally came into the sport into like into PCC, where did you start? Yeah. Uh, I started in A class. Oh, okay. Now, how long did it take you to go from A to G? Um, so I started shooting USPC in 2017. Uh, I think I made master in 2019. Uh, so about two years to go from A to master and then GM took about an additional two years. So I've been a master for just over a year now, or sorry, a GM for just over a year now. Okay. Now, what was like the biggest hurdle eventually to get from M to GM? So for, I'll even back it down lower than that. So like going from like starting in B class, right? Most people kind of end up in B class and that's where a lot of them kind of live and die in USPSA. Um, it's not that there aren't good shooters in B class or A class. What they lack is the consistency to perform across a large match and do that 10 out of 10 times, right? Um, they see people shooting fast and they want to emulate that and go fast. And what they're not able to do is get the hits, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens as you progress through the sport, you definitely don't slow down. In fact, you get faster, but your abilities, what you see and what you can do catch up to what your eyes want to do. And you just start landing those things more and more. So progressing from A class and beyond is all about consistency. There's lots of good shooters in A class and B class, but what they can't do is tie that together across a six or seven stage club match or a 10 or 12 stage major and have that consistency that you need to do it every time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, I, I agree with that. It's my problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you know, people, people will talk about match speed, right? If you see me at a local, guess what? you got a good chance to beat me at a local because when I'm at a local, I'm trying new gear. I'm trying new techniques. I am, you know, pushing myself to see where the wheels fall off and whether it's speed or accuracy. Like if I'm going out to shoot a local, I've always got something I'm there to do. I'm either trying new gear. I'm going out to, you know, let's say I had a bad match where I shot 86% of the points and I'm down on myself and I'm trying to clean that up. I'll go out with the goal of, Hey, I'm going to shoot 95% of points tonight. Or I had a match that I shot clean, but I just wasn't as fast as I wanted to be. So I'm going to go out tonight and my goal is to just have the lowest raw time and, you know, points, points be whatever they are and we'll, we'll work it out and find that balance. But, um, when you get to a major, things are different, right? When I'm at a major, I'm never going full speed. You go mm-hmm. to major, you know, 85 to 90% of your speed and your capability, because you want to deliver things that you can do 10 out of 10 times. Uh, if you go out there and, you know, you can do it nine out of 10 times and it's a 10 stage major, that means you're going to have one dumpster fire and that dumpster fire could very well cost you the match. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Now, when you're speaking about testing gear at locals, Crocs or flip-flops? <laughs> so, yeah, good, good, good point. Uh, so I have both. Uh, I was never a Croc fan, but the, the, the uh, off-road strap in the back definitely helps. Um, I've shot a couple matches in flip-flops, not going not gonna to lie. Uh, Steel Challenge specifically, right? Because except for the one stage, you don't have to move. Uh, so Steel Challenge is easy in flip-flops, but I have shot the stage that you that requires movement and flip-flops and that was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even shot a local match in flip-flops to get, you know, I got four or five stages in on a six or seven stage match and had a lead. And I was like, eh, you know, see, see what I can do. There you go. I'm, I'm good with either. Yeah. Now what about slides? I think that's dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous. Those things will flip, you know, the, the, the tip, if you catch it on something, those will flip over. There's nothing to hold them there. So not a big fan of soccer slides. That's, that's for after shooting. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> It's all about footwear. I, I've even been eyeballing. So I, I wear reef reef uh, flip flops a lot of times. The, the mm-hmm. fannings that have like the built in bottle opener and stuff like that. Very yeah. handy for these summer months at the pool or the lake. Um, but they also do golf versions that have like little plastic golf spikes on the bottom for that extra traction. So um, that's something I've got my eye on. For there you go. 
So, so Reef needs to sponsor. Is that what you're saying? I'd be cool with that. I've been wearing these things for over 10 years. I've got five or six pair right now. So yeah, they should. Yep. Pay, pay me them shoe bills, right? <laughs> exactly. It's just, uh, that's always fun. I always like fucking with you on them because it's like flip-flops. Well, I, we had a we had a message. It's like, you wear flip-flops stereo five. If you could what, get Coley to do what? Uh, I forget, I forget how we even got on the topic, but uh, I try to get Shane to wear some cutoff shorts, cutoff jean shorts, jorts. Yeah. He, he was out on the lake or something one day and, and, you know, we, we, we chat on Instagram occasionally and uh, I, I forget all the circumstances, but uh it's been full court press to get him to go that way, but I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna happen. I mean, yeah, you, know, you never know. We could always like, well, sorry, we gotta we gotta cut your shorts because they're just too they're too long, right? They're too long. They're too past the knees. No, it'll be be pretty cool. I'll I'll be. I think he's shooting this match. I can't he remember. Is. Yeah, he, he he's shooting the same rotation I am. So he's shooting the Friday full day, Saturday half Saturday morning or whatever. Oh, he, oh, yep. I guess, I guess when I look at his squad, I kind of forget he's on that squad because there's other, there's other people on that squad. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird squad, right? Cause there's like, there's a lot of like the whole Glock team is shooting and there's a couple other like super talented shooters. There's a couple of like dudes I've never heard of either, but it was a lock squad. So I'm not sure how that, uh, that all came to fruition. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think originally it was just Casey, Jesse and, uh, was it? yeah and then the glock squad so yeah. then, it, then it became the og squad it had, well mostly ogs because like what travis is on that squad max is on that squad okay so uh i think so and then i don't know how some of those people got on there i don't know to be honest with you but um yeah so i'm ha- speaking let's move on to that a little bit i'm excited for area five this will come out after area five unfortunately yeah. but i'm it's excited right. it's it's no it's not your fault just how i do these things right I record these in somewhat batches because I like to take a week off, but I don't want to take a week off on the shows because the listeners, I love you. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah, Area 5 will be fun. It's 15 stages over a day and a half. Um, so that's kind of exciting. I mean, you, you get done on Saturday afternoon, you can you can go home at that point, you know? That's the game plan. So I saw I, when, when Nationals was originally announced for Colorado out of Cameo, um, coming from Atlanta, like, I used to do the air travel thing back in my paintball days. And that was a huge hassle flying with compressed air cylinders after nine 11 and all that jazz. So I was like, you know, I really got not a lot of, not a lot of uh, plans on hopping on an airplane to travel with guns. Um, so when cameo was announced, I was like, all right, well, I'll just find some other big matches to shoot. And then, uh, so area five popped up and I was like, wow, this is 15 stages. I'm like, I think the entry entry fee is like 200 bucks. I'm like, that's a lot of shooting for that kind of money. Uh, I'm in. Um, it's a pretty long drive from Atlanta. I think it's gonna be about 11 hours for me, but it's straight up I-75, so it should be be a nice, easy drive. Um, so I got all got all jazzed about it. And that was gonna be, you know, aside from Area Six, that was gonna be my big match of the year. And then I ended up signing up for Nationals anyway. Well, yeah, you signed up for Nationals, and it moved closer, so that's kind of nice. So yeah, I was already signed up and committed to it anyway. But yeah, it moving moving back to CMP, uh, you know, 90 minutes from my house is. Definitely nothing I'm complaining about. So are you going to stay at home those days? Or are you going to like stay in a hotel? Or... No, I'll do a hotel. Uh, those, those morning rotations would be too tough. Uh, and, you know, because I think what the first day of the match is on Friday, you never know what Atlanta traffic is going to be like. So no, I'll, I'll just do the hotel thing for the, or get a house or, or whatever for the, for the duration. Yeah. Team Da Vinci, get a house. Team Da Vinci. So, I mean, I was already signed up for that before the Da Vinci thing came together. So uh, we actually haven't discussed that. I'm not sure if they're doing something or not. So. Right. Never yeah, thanks know. for the reminder. I need to yeah. need that. 
Well, yeah, you can always ask the one person who's going to be at Area 5. That's, well, well Corey's supposed to be there, too, so that'll be kind of Corey nice. will be there, yeah. He's shooting the other rotation, but, yeah, he'll be there. Yeah. If he's shooting on, yeah, Saturday, Sunday, which, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a wash, right? Everyone gets the same amount of time. Some people just got to shoot more in the morning than some people shoot. Yeah, I mean, the only, the only reason I did it is, you know, with young kids in the house, that gives me a, gives me a Sunday to spend with the kiddies. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're in school or daycare or what have you during the week. So I don't miss, you know, I just miss a few hours in the evening to be gone during the week. So I'd rather do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, and the stages look good. I don't know how much you've looked over the the stages or matchbooks. So, I, I so I I have looked at them a little bit. They they look fine. You know, obviously you've seen them on the matchbook and seen them on the ground. Usually is two different stories, but uh, no, I'm excited. I don't see anything that looks ridiculous. I think it's just I think it's gonna be a fun match. I like the the you know the round count is varied. I think I saw a fixed time stage in there, so that'll be cool. Yeah. Have you ever messed with the fixed time other than like a classifier? So oddly enough, I'd never shot a fixed time until this past weekend. I was shooting at East Alabama Gun Club in uh, Phoenix City, Alabama, and shot my very first fixed time classifier. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fixed time is definitely interesting. It's like Virginia count, but not like Virginia count. It's it's definitely something to read the rule book on, I guess, to make sure you uh, are fresh about those when you go to those. Yeah, I mean, you just got you just got to you got to figure out how to maximize points, right? If it's just, mm-hmm. I, I think the I think the fixed time stage at Area Five has some movement element to it, so you just got to figure out how to maximize, you know, what makes sense to shoot at, what doesn't. If you can't shoot at everything, like I think there's going to be a little little gaminess to it for some divisions for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Or especially your like your skill level, like right? Do you do you go and maximize points somewhere else, or do you just kind of, or, yeah, whatever you're more comfortable with. If you're not if you're not good with running, don't run, I guess, right? Sure. But yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, it'll be fun. I think this will be my first level three match. I don't know. How many of, how many level threes have you gone to by now? Uh, I've shot two area six match twice. Okay. And that's both been up in what? North Carolina for you then? No, the, the first one I did was in 2020. And uh, that was at Volusia down in Florida. And then... I did not shoot the area six match when the first time it was at Rowan in, in North Carolina in 2021. And then I shot it this year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Didn't, wasn't 2020 like moved because of COVID I'm assuming it was well, same sure. location, but time-wise, cause it seemed like it was later in 2020. Everything. Yeah, it was, everything got all jumbled. That's right. And that's actually how I ended up shooting the Kentucky match for the first time is because I was signed up to shoot PCC nationals in 2020 and then, yeah, because of COVID, like I was scrambling to find big matches to shoot as a, as a run up to nationals. So uh, area six was already on my radar, but it was supposed to be like April in Florida, which sounds lovely. And uh, as it turned out, I think uh, PCC nationals ended up being in June and area six was maybe July, something like that. So they turned from like, a, you know, the, the area six was going to be a pleasant match in the springtime in Florida to blazingly hot in the the middle of summer in florida so that was that was interesting mm-hmm. yeah definitely definitely an interesting uh layout how that went so typically are, do you are you do you dry fire or are you all just my matches a local like my practice is local matches or what my practice for the most part is local matches um having two young kids i've got a five-year-old and three-year-old uh in the house they take you know outside of work they take almost every drop of extra time that i have here at the house so uh, unless I've got something new going on, like a new gun, a new optic or something like that, not a lot of dry fire happening, whether that's handgun, whether that's PCC. Um, that's one of the things I love about the division. And some people may hate the division because of that, you know, with a handgun, um, 
when you don't shoot a handgun for three weeks or four weeks or something like that, that skill starts perishing almost immediately. Not having it in your hand is enough that that muscle memory kind of starts to fade on you ever so slightly and you lose the edge. But one of my favorite things about the PCC division, at least for me, may not be this way for everybody, but I'm so tuned in with the setup of the stock and the grip and how everything fits together and how that mounts to my shoulder that I can put the gun down for two, three, four weeks, pick it back up and it's like it was never gone. So it's one of my favorite things about the division. Um, is I don't say you don't have to practice because there's tons of people that you know have to practice. I, I have just a little bit of natural skill when it comes to eye-hand coordination that's probably helping me out here. But for me personally, uh, I get to put the gun down and don't have to dry fire a ton. I don't do very much live fire practice for that same reason. Um, if there is a you know if there's some some new unique challenge in a match like at, at nationals last year, they had that weekend reload stage, the, the two string thing where you had to like reload with your offhand. Mm -hmm. I practice that obviously, right? Cause like, I've never done that before. I think most people haven't done that cause it was kind of an awkward maneuver. Went out and practiced that for 20 or 30 minutes, got comfortable with it and off we went. Okay. Now I've actually never noticed any PCC shooters about that. So how, how does a PCC shooter do that then? So I, I just, I shot the match with an extra a magazine pouch that was just oriented the opposite way. So I'm a right-handed shooter. So most of my mags go to the left side of my body. Uh, I just had a pouch, one pouch configured that went the opposite direction. So I shot that whole string with my weak hand and then reloaded also with my strong hand. Oh, okay. So like it came off the gun. Do you hit, did you hit the button then with like your, your strong hand or? So if I, let's see, I, I think if I remember that, 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 that particular stage, I think you shot the first string freestyle and then you had to reload and shoot the opposite string. So I think I was able to drop the, drop the mag with my normal hand. I honestly don't remember. Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been gosh it's been like eight or nine months ago so it's right my head exactly yeah so then you just bloop, put it in there i knew a lot of pistol guys were doing it like what bat like they flipped the mag around on a magnet or something everyone did yeah. everything a little different it so, wasn't as awkward as i assumed it was going to be yep. it wasn't and it also was it wasn't a a stage that you were going to win the match by or lose the match by it was just one that you had to survive and get points right exactly well and i think i think that was the stage if i remember right i think that was that was the one that uh not bleager uh Freilich. i think that was what Freilich disqualified yeah yeah the guy winning the match at that probably by that point <laughs> takes some he, I, so I think he was, he was either winning the match or just within a few points of max. And they were of course leading up to that big ammo can stage where he had to like chug the 30 pound ammo can down the 45 yard bay. Mm -hmm. uh, and that stage was like built for Josh, right? Like big dude, that 30 pound can wasn't going to slow him down one bit. So I think he definitely would have won that stage and it would have put him in, in contention to win the match for sure. So that's, that's definitely a bummer. Oh yeah. It's definitely a bummer. That's for sure. It definitely is. And it's, it's cool to be able to see those top guys go at it, right? You know, Max has been Max is now undefeated, but it was it was nice. It was interesting to see last year, you know, that he it was it was very much a mix throughout the first two days. He's I mean, that's well, that's the thing, even for the last couple, you know, for the last two, three years, he's not just run away with all these matches. There's always been somebody in contention. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a matter of, of Max was able to do it across, you know, all 12 stages or 15 stages or 18 stages or whatever it was. And uh you know, the other guys fell short and, and Max even, you know, he didn't have a perfect match. He was shooting the JP five. I think it was, you know, at least his first major that I saw with that gun. And he actually had a wicked malfunction shooting the, the class, what was to be the classifier stage, the trigger freeze classifier. He had a, he had a big jam with the JP five on that stage, which is why he wasn't in the top of the, that, that mm -hmm. stage. 
Oh yeah, exactly. That's it's. I didn't know that he switched from his what Brecky build, his custom Brecky weird contraption with quarters in the back. Yeah, quarter quarters are a, a trick of many PCC shooters, myself included. But uh, yeah, I, that's the one thing I love about Max. Is he's a tinkerer like I am. I mean, that, there's springs and all kinds of buffers and stuff around here to try. And uh, I think everybody was kind of shocked when he showed up to Nashville shooting a JP factory gun. Yeah, that is, well, I mean, it probably wasn't 100% factory. He probably fucked with it a little bit, I'm betting. Um, I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have, one, one of these days I'll have to ask him whenever I see him. He's, I don't know, he's supposed to be shooting a match, I think, this weekend or something. But I think maybe, is he shooting, maybe he's shooting, maybe he's shooting the Trident match this weekend. I don't know, because I'm not his babysitter. <laughs> God, if I don't know everybody's schedule in the whole shooting community, God, that'd be, that'd be that. It's hey, good on you for even thinking about it, man. It's hard for me to keep up on my own shooting schedule, uh, let alone other people. So, well, it's very interesting, especially now being a super involved with my club. It's like how many weekends I'm actually on the range. Just you know, might not be shooting, but it's like, oh, we got to get ready for the match. So it's like yep. two months out. Like, oh, we're gonna go set this up now because it's really interesting because of how our bays are set up. We have ten bays set up only for events, right? So that'd be USPSA matches. Uh, the well-armed women or our three gun guys, like it's set up, it's locked. The bays are like locked off. So general membership can't use the bays essentially, at least for the, the main 10 we use. So it's kind of nice. You can set up walls ahead of time and fault lines. So it's all just sitting there kind of half ready to go. And you're just like, okay, now we got to put targets out like the week prior. That's all good. So it's, it's a blessing and a curse because it's either there's something always like someone half-assed took something down. So it's not all down. Then you got to rip sure. it down to put more shit up. Or, yeah, that's actually great advice for newer shooters uh, to the sport, right? Going out and helping out with the setup day will give you some insight to the stage designer's master plan and how he plans on the stage to, to run and, and what quirks he's built into the stage. So mm-hmm. uh, for, for anybody looking for an advantage, I definitely recommend going out and helping out at your local club. Like, hey, you're going to, you know, those guys will be really appreciative of it. You'll probably get to shoot your match for free. That's at least what my club does. And because uh, we, we actually set up a week in advance as well. Um, our bays are still... Uh, general members can access them, but uh, they just kind of have to work around our stages. They can set up the stage if they want to go put all the targets out. But yeah, we're able to put walls out and uh, we put target sticks out, but just don't uh, obviously don't put cardboard on until the morning of. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's nice because then you get to know more of the community. You get to understand why you build stages, especially like uh, one of our main match directors, uh, Walt, uh, he designed stages last year for nationals. Uh, he's the RM yeah. for area five uh he's methodical he, he has reasons why he does things and you get to kind of learn and it develops new stage designers and be like well why are you doing this or why does this port here in the stage instead of there being a mindless port of like oh there's a port it's an option right yeah why do i need to go to the port oh there's no target that i need to go to the port so i'm gonna so why put it in the stage right so it sure it makes you well, think- that, that's the cool thing about trying so like this past weekend i traveled and shot some clubs over in Alabama that I don't actually, one of them I've never shot before. And the other is CMP's local club match that I don't get to very often, but you know, every match because of their match director and who's, who's designing stages has its own unique feel. So that's one of the coolest things about the sport is you get good at your own club because you know how your club builds stages and what challenges they're often putting out there, but to travel around to other places and, and, you know, experience other stages, other, other match director mentalities of, you know, how they like to design stuff. it, It really broadens your horizon when it comes to shooting. Mm-hmm. Oh, especially like if you sometimes have a, we've got a couple clubs locally that are the beginner matches. Like if you want to like, if you're just getting into the sport, I'd recommend you go to this club. Nothing's going to be super difficult, 
but not like, you know, but the top guys are going to be able to perform it better, you know, with less mistakes, but the newer guys are still going to be able to get through it without being like, Oh my God, I missed a target or, you know, you know, it's kind of one of the, and it's interesting, but um, there's definitely, if you, if you only shoot at those beginner clubs and then you go to a big, a better, like a, I'll say a better club with more difficult stages, maybe sure. in it's or challenges that you'd see in a level two match. And then they're like, why am I not at the top? I'm normally like winning my local match. And, you know, you kind of go to, I call them like level one pluses. I'd want to say, sure. right. And then you go and then you get your ass kicked and, and then it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I consider my club to be one of those as well. A lot of the newer shooters that have gotten into, you know, they come out and they've shot their first major this past year and they get out there and they realize that, Hey, they're like, Hey, this isn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And I'm like, that's because you shoot a really, really challenging club every month, right. Where mm-hmm. we are testing, not just your shooting abilities, but we're testing your, your stage planning abilities, your, I don't want to say memory because we're not talking memory stages, but, you know, we'll do stuff like where we will let a target present itself at two different shooting locations to give you the op- a options. Options are always good for this sport in terms of, you know, coming up with your own stage plan, but like we give you the opportunity to kind of hang yourself and shoot it twice and uh, things of that nature. So like, you know, slightly more complex stages in terms of the shooting challenge versus just like, you know, putting out weird props like Texas stars and, complicated movers and things like that that are going to malfunction and cause delays at your at your matches some of the best matches i've ever shot including majors had nothing more than just poppers you know mm-hmm. no, no crazy activators you know maybe one one or two swingers maybe a max trap or something like that but like skip all the gimmicky stuff that's just going to cause uh range equipment malfunctions and delay the match oh absolutely and speaking about range equipment malfunctions it's like make sure like if you're going to put it in a match either you can replace it with another if it dies and or make sure that it works in the first place don't like oh like sure you're maybe your four stage or five stage local it's okay to kind of struggle through it but when you've got 200 fucking competitors who have to shoot it and it's a piece of shit don't fucking put it out there right so my local club riverbend gun club we hosted the georgia state championship for the past two years and we were one of the the first clubs in the southeast and i don't know if this is just a phenomenon of the southeast but like we started doing staff reset our state matches are all staff reset. And one of the big reasons we did that, number one, is to provide a value to the to the shooter. But number two, we were running half-day split formats. So AMPM formats, you shot only a half day. So you would shoot our 10-stage match in four and a half hours, mm-hmm. right? And to achieve that, number one, you have small squads. They were like six or seven-man squads, so it runs really fast. But with staff reset, you don't have problems. You don't have somebody that taped target early. So you got to reshoot. You don't have malfunctions. If you, if you did do a, an activator or a swinger, you've got the same guy resetting that thing every day. So he starts to see if the piece of steel is getting heavy or a cable is getting worn or just what, whatever the case is. And that that's thankfully has started, started to run rampant here in the Southeast. We've got the South Carolina section match, the Carolina classic in North Carolina that are all doing this staff reset. A lot of them are also doing the half day format. And honestly, that, that's what that's what majors should be like. It, it boggles my mind that area area six this year was even staff reset because it was at the same club uh, that the Carolina Classic is run at. So that's just a format they're used to. But like, blows my mind that you go to majors, especially nationals, and it's competitor reset. Mm-hmm. Like, the match fee is what three hundred dollars. Like, how much does it have to cost for you to put two more staff on there that you're you're paying, you know, what a hundred dollar stipend, hundred fifty dollar stipend to be there, like. How much more across 500 competitors do you need to make it be an actual professional shooting event? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely understand that. I mean, I think we want to, I don't know, at least in Michigan, we have lost shooters here locally. 
So, I mean, it brings down the staff pool. I mean, we have a good chance. We have a good possibility of getting a lot of good staff when we come to our matches, but I don't know necessarily if we could put that out at the current state. Cause it seems like, I don't know. How, how has your shooting population been? Has it gone down? Is it resurgent? So this, this, and you're, you're spot on. The staffing is the big problem. Not every area, not every club can, can achieve this because they just don't have enough competent personnel to do that. Um, my club match is slightly down. Like here, actually, let me pull it up here. Off the old computer. We actually shoot my club match this weekend. We are at, see how many shooters we have signed up. We are at 94 shooters right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is actually a little light for us. So pre-COVID, we were regularly shooting 120 plus shooters and we tried to keep it around 12 man squad. So we were shooting an eight to 10 stage club match for 20 bucks every month. Um, so we've dialed that back a little bit just because of the number of shooters. But you know, the other big, big thing I have about shooting at Riverbend is just the amount of talent that we have here across the different divisions. One of the reasons I progressed as quickly as I did in the sport and even jumped in at A is I, just, I shot with a bunch of really great guys top level competitors from day one. So I saw the right way to do it. I saw the speed that you need to go, the type of accuracy that you need to shoot at. And like, so my club match this weekend, we've got six grandmasters in attendance. We've got 12 masters across various divisions. Um, You know, oftentimes my club match looks more like, you know, some some state championships when you get out to some of these random states somewhere. So Mm -hmm. uh, we are blessed here in the Atlanta, Georgia area where we've just got number one, tons of matches outdoors, indoors. I can shoot almost any night of the week if I want to uh, here in the Atlanta area. And then in terms of weekend matches within 90 minutes to two hours of here, virtually every weekend I can go shoot a match if I wanted to. Right. And that is pretty cool. Locally here, not so great. I mean, God, I want to think for me, like my club, my club match is like an hour away. And then it goes, it goes, goes to an hour and 10, what hour and 35. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think that's pretty, that's pretty typical, right? Cause like Matt, Ranges like that aren't generally going like in the middle of an urban or suburban area. So they're going to be out in the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, so my club is about 40 minutes from my house. And then, you know, CMP, like I said, is 90 minutes. A couple clubs in Alabama, two hours away. Um, I can be up to Belton Gun Club in, in Greenville, where the South Carolina State Championship is also in about two hours. So, oh, so yeah, you got, yeah, you got a lot of options. That's kind of the nice thing, too, right? Having the options of being like, well, I can't make my local club match, but I can go make this other match. Yeah. Hey man, nobody, no, nobody's making you guys live in Michigan. It's really nice other places. And, and we get to shoot year-round. No snow. Until, like, snow shits on your house and be like, what the fuck do I do? The roads are closed. I can't, you can't go anywhere. Uh, that is the problem here in Atlanta. Everybody makes fun of us for, for our winter driving, right? But, like, there's two problems. Number one, it would be financially irresponsible to have all the snow equipment here for the twice every two years that we have an event. And then, number two, I don't care what you northerners say, it's hard to drive on ice. And that's what we get, you know, mm-hmm. even up north, if you get just straight up ice, nobody's driving on that. You need snowpack on top of it to be able to drive. And uh, oh, yeah. the problem here in Atlanta is we very rarely stay below freezing for long. So if we get a wintry precipitation thing where it snows, uh, it usually melts, melts through the day, refreezes at night. And then we're, you know, we're, we're at home eating, eating uh, milk sandwiches uh, from all the bread, milk and eggs that we took for our, uh, the rest of the week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, no, I definitely get that because, yeah, people still don't know how to drive on ice. Yeah, so it's like, but yeah. Yeah, so I don't blame you guys to not have it. Like in Texas, when Texas froze over, they're like, well, yeah. we're fucked. We're going to be here for a while. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'll happen occasionally, right? But the smart people just stay your ass at home. And, right. uh, you know, like I said, we get to shoot year-round. January and February are our coldest months, so it gets to be, you know, not as fun, especially if you're shooting a handgun division because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your, your hands don't do so well and you feel every every 
single power factor your gun's spitting out, but uh, we can do it. Oh yeah. Like locally here, like there's not, we don't have a lot of indoor ranges for, well, indoor clubs, I should say. So they don't have a lot of indoor clubs, but uh, most ranges will still shoot steel challenge outside through the winter, just because you can leave the steel up. You don't have to and go paint set- it, and, and, and paint it a different color. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's for sure. You paint it, well, you paint it black or whatever or something. So then you can see it, but so you, but you're not trompsing through bad, but yeah, well, like my club, they'll shoot. It seems like the summertime will take steel challenge will go away just because of majors and shit that goes on at the club. It's like, we don't have time to set up the steel or, or it's like there's six, seven fucking people shooting steel challenge and they're shooting four guns a piece. And it's like, yeah, that, that's always, that's always irritating. Even for like, there's a few USPSA clubs down here that allow for that. A guy shooting handgun division plus PCC or whatever. And like, I just avoid those squads like to play because that guy's going to spend his whole day just loading, loading and managing guns and definitely not helping reset mm-hmm. stages. Now it'd be really cool is like if you could have like a two day format, like for the match, like one may you could shoot it twice. You could either shoot it like sat, say you could do it. This is hypothetical, but you shoot Saturday and Sunday, but you shoot two different, completely di- different divisions. Right. Sure. So then you, you, you know, sure you're shooting the same stages, but you're shooting, you know, you're shooting with two different guns and it, then you don't have to manage it. Like people shooting two guns at the same time. And cause you know, they're half the time they ain't going to do shit cause they're not resetting cause they're getting one gun ready or, or setting another gun up or it's, you know, so do you shoot a lot of steel challenge? I'll ask you a question for a change. No, actually I don't. I will. I will be, I'll be shooting steel challenge here in the winter because, you know, I'll get the new open gun at some point. So, uh, you know, without a lot of a bunch of local matches, I'll go shoot some steel challenge to get, you know, transitions and get the figure. Exactly. The gun out. That's, I, I don't shoot a ton of steel challenge. In fact, I'm only a class with PCCO and uh, steel challenge, but yeah, it's fantastic practice for transitions because uh, there's no Charlie's on a steel plate. It's a miss. Yep. Exactly. Hey, you know, just getting used to the gun. It'll be nice. And um, usually, you know, if it gets cold, we have a little propane heater sitting in the one little shed thing. Just like turn it on. We'll sit here for an hour and like, all right, let's go back to shooting. So sure. But yeah. So, and, and, you know, I, even though I'm an, I'm steel challenge endorsed, I mean, I still have never worked a steel chair. I, I haven't shot a steel challenge match at all. So I'm like, okay, I guess I know the rules. <laughs> I have an RO endorsement. I have done nothing except club matches and probably very poorly at that. No, but th- you think about it. So, you, so you've got your, you know, you're an RO, but if you had hadn't taken the seminar, would you have known some of the rules that have saved your, your butt at some matches? So it's interesting you say that because my very first major, I actually had a popper calibration issue. Center punched a, a big popper that was set heavy. And like, it was my very first major. Nobody told me I could call for calibration. Uh, until we were off that bay at our next stage and like somebody asked me about it so uh yeah i definitely have been burned by the rules so being an ro and uh in fact the main reason i became an ro was to learn the rules and then also help out since my club hosted the georgia state championship the past two years i acted as a cro on a stage um so definitely helped to run stages smoothly you know two 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 years running uh for you know hundreds and hundreds of shooters i had one reshoot and that was because of a pad problem where a guy like keyed the key score on the wrong shooter. And when it came time to transfer, like the guy never got a chance to hit accept. Like he saw his score, but like my guy hit accept and then transferred it. So like the guy didn't like his scores and we called the range master and he got a reshoot. But in terms of like the stage running, not a single reshoot. I don't play that. There you go. That's, that's always beneficial. And yeah, I I know the rules inside and out. Um, You know, any major competitor should blows my mind that there are some top competitors that have never held an RO certification. Um, 
some of the rules are intuitive and you just know what's not right, but there's a lot of things that people think aren't right and should be a rule and they're just not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And there's people nowadays who are like, Oh, put the whole seminar online. Do you think you'd have gotten as much out of it if it was all online than having to invest the time to go to the class? Um, the, the class portion. Yeah. I mean, cause so first off, our, most of the ROs in our sport, they suck. They're terrible. Mm-hmm. They're warm bodies because let's be honest, a lot of the people that participate in a very high level are retirees. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but they just have a large amount of time to dedicate to their hobbies. I'm like, you know, somebody like myself, you know, you know, relatively young guy, got young kids. Um, I don't have a ton of time to dedicate to that stuff. So like, thankfully, thanks, thanks. First of all, thanks to those guys for supporting and working matches, but the amount of poor officiating I've seen at level twos and level threes and even nationals where you just have guys that they're, they're, they're not good shooters and not good ROs, or, or maybe they're great shooters and they're just bad ROs because the two aren't, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. Um, but there's some really bad officiating in this sport in terms of uh, shooters or ROs that are just out of position. They get caught watching a shooter shoot versus ROing a stage. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things, but at the end of the day, I don't have a solution to that problem because it's manpower related and short of paying people. I don't know how you get more people to participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like paying, paying, I mean, like not here's a $150 stipend that you also have to put towards your hotel, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is definitely a difficult part, right. Of getting valid and better than warm bodies, you know, being picky. I know what I think Steger last year, he was the match director for Wisconsin and he kind of, weeded out you know they well so they say was bad staff but they you know they they handpicked who they were going to use right so they didn't just accept everybody which anyone's prerogative right they can do what they want but you know you get to pick and then have the best possible match experience i guess for your competitors at at the very least yeah handpicking the cro you know even if you have to take some some warm bodies that maybe aren't the best ro's having a strong cro that understands shooting understands the rules and knows how to run a stage um, can solve a lot of that, right? Cause like, did I have all the best ROs working my stages? No, of course not. There were guys out there that really weren't better. You know, they weren't hardly had enough competency just to pace targets, right? They were constantly trying to like tape something before it was scored or, or, or forgetting to go tape some obscure target, right? It's so like, mm-hmm. but that all comes down to the CRO being on top of it. And uh, thankfully my match director here locally kind of tapped me to, to step up and, and do that because as I mentioned, I, I'm just, I just have an RO certification, but you don't actually have to be a CRO to CRO a stage, at least not at a level two. Mm-hmm. So I was CRO both years for mine, just with an RO certification and uh, ran a stage tighter than most dudes I've seen at nationals. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also, I think that also dictates the level of the, the club, right? Right. You want to have, you have to have, you can have good staff and especially if you don't have bad club culture, right? Like there's a lot of club culture, um, nothing against people who try to do this, but the scoring early during like a, like a local match, yeah. it's like, like some people are like, no, we're going to score it all at the end, like a major, because it's, you, you don't miss anything that way. But if you got right. the one guy, like, I don't know, the tablet guy hunting and pecking and looking at targets. Yeah. So two, I got, I got, I actually have super strong feelings on that. Right. Cause it's, it is, it is a cultural problem in not just indoor matches, but level ones that, that people want to do that. And, and they're doing it with good intentions, right. To keep the match flow going, get things going fast, mm-hmm. but it rarely saves time. Right. Because if there is, if there is a single problem that erases all the time that you save for your entire squad through that one problem through a reshoot or, you know, calling a range master or whatever, 
whatever the case is. But more importantly, it takes the score, the scoring guy out of the equation for doing his job of ROing, watching for 180s, mm-hmm. uh, watching for foot faults and things like that, that he needs to be assisting the main stage RO with. Um, that's my biggest beef with it is that when your eyes are in the pad, your eyes aren't where they should be, which is on the shooter and on the stage. Mm-hmm. Right. Your time to be in the pad is when we're, you're actually scoring it, like after the stage, after he's done running it, right? Yeah, like until until the gun is in the holster or the PCC is flagged, your eyes should be on that shooter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I, I 100% agree on that one. Now, now that you say flag in it, your PCC um, locally, do you have any issues with PC other than yourself? PCC shooters who take too damn long to get like who aren't ready when it's their time to shoot. So, yeah, so some of that comes down to the club, right? My club is actually really nice, where we have a safe table on every bay. So one side of the one side of the bay has a safe table, mm-hmm. and the opposite side has a PCC staging area. So this is actually another raised surface, so another table, effectively. It's got a big sign that says, "Hey, this is your PCC bagging area." So you, you unbag your PCC there, and you're and you're good to go. And it's close, you know, relatively close to the to the shooting area. So are there guys that are problematic or just aloof? Certainly. Are there guys that are delayed because they're actually out there helping and taping state, you know, re- resetting stages and stuff like that and just forgot where they were in the order? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have guys that have like a, a, a eight minute make ready process? Sure. You got that too, but that's just part of the game. It's allowed mm-hmm. by the rules. Um, that's the shooter's time. In my opinion, you take whatever time you need to assess your stage plan, get your heart rate where it needs to be, calm your breathing. Uh, but dudes that like their gun's still in the bag and they're the shooter. Like I got a little beef with that, but some of it is circumstantial based on um, the range. Like mm-hmm. if there's no PCC area and, you know, you got to put your stuff by the berm 30 yards away from the start position, you know, there, there's circumstances, but it's not just a PCC thing. There's plenty of pistol shooters that take their sweet time. Oh yeah, absolutely. But um, do you, is yours always in a bag and, or is it, or do you have, have you used like the gun cart kind of mentality of like, no, I just do bag. Um, yeah. I do like a backpack style rifle bag. Um, I've got like a, like a cart, like a pull behind, like beach cart that I use sometimes. But the problem with that is like some ranges just aren't well suited for it. If it's rocky terrain or, you know, super thick gravel or something like that, the carts are not usually an advantage. And back to the the consistency thing, if you want to win matches, it's got to be consistent. And that consistency starts before you leave the house, right? It's your, your prep. How are you packing your gear? Uh, how did you load your ammo? And when you get to the range, are you doing all the same stuff over and over again? So rarely do I take that card to a major because I don't want to have something simple like that change anything about what I do during the make ready process or between stages and stuff like that. So right. throw the bag in the dirt by the berm, pull the rifle out, do you think? So do you, when you go to a match, do you have like that rifle bag plus another range bag or is it all fit in that one rifle bag? I've done both. So I, I, I've done just a, a rifle bag, like a little 511 bag or something like that that holds a carbine and, and not much more. And then, a, you know, I'll carry a backpack that I'll like throw on the front kind of baby style and carry all my other stuff in there. Uh, I'm actually using a, a rifle bag from a company called Savior Equipment right now. I've had it for two or three weeks. I basically got it when I got my new DaVinci gun. Oh, so it came uh, with the DaVinci gun, right? No, I didn't come with it. No, they actually came in a very nice hard case, but I'm not, I don't use that for match transport. But uh, because of the side charging handle, I knew it was going to be a little more of a challenge to get two PCCs in the bag. Mm-hmm. So I wanted something a little bit bigger than I had. And it just so worked out, not only would it hold the two PCCs, but it had enough storage in there that I could get all my mags, all my other, you know, uh, rags for cleaning glasses and lube and tools and all that stuff. So I'm currently experimenting with a single bag uh, system. Well, there you go. Well, especially in most times, you know, you're walking bay to bay. You're not walking that far. 
you know, I mean, depending on the range, right? You know, you yeah, walk in depending, depending upon the range. Exactly. Right. I'm very lucky. Our range is awesome because it's literally like frost proof where it's fucking rows of bays. Just all in a row. Yeah. And now I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, now you've, now you've got my attention. As much as I like shooting the Kentucky match because the stages are fun, their bay layout is not so ideal where it's broken up into a couple different zones and there's like hundreds of feet of elevation change between the different zones. Like, yeah. Leif did add some like transport options. He was, he hooked a trailer up to his truck and was hauling people around from the, the very far zone back to zone one. So that was good. That was a nice addition, but still some hill climbing to be done. Yeah. They definitely, yeah, definitely. As long as people have that suited out, right. Cause it's a pain in the ass when you don't have, when you're like, Oh, I got to walk all that way. Yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I've watched, I think there's been videos or pictures of uh, Logan and Larry from uh, McCarver fucking hauling ass with their damn little strollers. <laughs> It's funny to watch them go. It's funny. Uh, Logan and Larry. Those, those two, guys. those two forever, right? Like those two are hilarious. God. But what other than area five and nationals, do you have any other major matches still in the books? Yes, quite a few actually. So I've, I've shot four, I think. I missed one because back in April, was it April? Right after area six, I tore my calf muscle at an indoor match. So I was sidelined for about five or six weeks and missed the South Carolina championship. But uh, yeah, so I, I shot Florida, Florida, Florida section or Florida state, whatever, whatever that was down in uh, uh, the Wyoming Antelope Club back in January. I shot the Alabama sectional match. I shot area six was supposed to shoot South Carolina. So that was four um, still remaining. I've got area five. Uh, I've got the Carolina classic and the Tennessee section match, both in the same weekend. So I'm shooting those back to back. I'm going to shoot Tennessee on staff day and then drive over to Charlotte and shoot the Carolina classic. Uh, I've got nationals in October. I'm going to shoot Gator classic out in Louisiana. That's in early November. And then, uh, one of the Da Vinci guys I saw is shooting a match called it's a North Florida section match or something like that. May even try to jump on that. So I, I'll probably end up around 10 majors this year. Oh, there you go. That's exciting, especially when you can you can piece it out right and time it out. It's fun, right. man. I, I I like traveling. I like to see new people. I like to squat with people I haven't squatted before. New new personalities. Uh, you know, different ranges. It's it's a lot of fun. The people are what make the sport fun. So getting out the ranges that you haven't shot at before, and traveling to majors especially because you see people that you know you might only see them once or twice a year, and it's just a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's always a bunch of fun, especially when your uh, your significant other actually lets you leave and be gone for a while. <laughs> My wife is very supportive in that regard. Yeah. So that's like I said, I don't, I don't practice much and that's kind of the trade-off that, you know, what I love to practice, of course, I'd love to practice. Uh, I'm a competitive person and if I don't win, I get very upset by that. So um, practices in the future. as so my kids get a little bit older. Um, that's definitely something I'm going to add back into the mix, but uh, for right now, the system kind of works. I've had, had a modicum of success doing what I'm doing. So um, it works for now. Fair enough. That's yeah. And without, you know, that support system, I mean, we wouldn't be able, nobody I think would be able to go do what they want to do on the weekends, unless you're a single person living with mom and dad and being the 40 year old virgin. Right. <laughs> you know, my, we, and we trade off, right. My wife's got the things that she does. She's uh, she's a big Disney fanatic. So she likes to go to Disney. Uh, she also, as part of the Disney experience, likes to uh, do the Disney races, the run Disney races. So she does like marathons and half marathons and uh, does a few of those at the Disney parks and things like that. So that that's kind of her jam. So you know, she, she runs and I shoot. There you go. Well, I mean, long as there's that trade-off and then yeah. that balance, right? Because, God, I don't think you'd want to be gone every weekend shooting a match without seeing your kids though, right? You know? 
it would be exhausting. Yeah. I mean, the kids, you know, especially at the young ages that they're at every minute away from them kind of stinks, right. Cause they're learning new stuff and, and they're, they're almost like new people when you get back after a two or three day trip. So um, yeah, it's not, not fun to be away, but we, we, we've all got our passions that uh, keep, keep us going in life. Right. Exactly. Well, we're near the very end, but we do got to pay the bills. So we got to pay the sponsors bills. So Jason, who are you affiliated and sponsored by? Yeah. So I, first I'll say this, I, you mentioned Larry and Logan. I, I never really sought out to do the whole sponsor thing uh, when it came to shooting. Shooting was just fun. It was an outlet, just something to do after work and clear my mind. But uh, I got connected with, with Logan and 357 souls. I'm sure he needs no introduction to your audience. Uh, his reputation precedes himself, but uh, he got me connected with M Carbo, who is my main sponsor today. Uh, M Carbo is based out of uh, the Tampa St. Pete area. Uh, it's a better known company. They make like small performance parts, mostly trigger, trigger groups, spring kits and things like that for some popular guns, some less, you know, more obscure guns. So some rifles and stuff like that, but do a lot of high performance parts and make all their stuff there in, uh, in Florida. So it's American made stuff owned by a veteran, great company. And they've, uh, they were my very first supporter and I, I've been with them now for two years. So uh, M Carbo has treated me phenomenally. Plus I get to, to hang out and shoot with uh, Larry and Logan. So, mm-hmm. you know. I, I should be paying for that honor myself. Oh, don't don't let him hear you that because he'd be like, pay up, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to pat that guy on the back occasionally. Um, you know, obviously DaVinci's in the fold now. So, uh, you know, ha- having an awesome new gun plus the support structure with with David and team down there and the shooting team, right? Having other other folks to, to bounce ideas off of. Uh, some of their newer shooters that, that hopefully we can mentor and, and turn into better shooters uh, through the years as they progress through the sport. So DaVinci is... Uh, uh, another good supporter of mine that I hope to have a super long relationship with. I love the gun so far and, uh, you know, I hope that continues. Uh, 1776 United, it's actually the hat you got going on here. Uh, 1776 United is a patriotic apparel company based here out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, it's actually run by a personal friend of mine. I've known the guy, I actually known him since I, I played paintball, right? So I've known this guy for over 20 years, uh, just a phenomenal local company. Has some of the softest, most comfortable shirts out there. So if you, you know, if you don't like heavyweight itchy t-shirts, um, he's your guy. Plus lots of patriotic slogans, um, does obviously hats, other soft goods and things like that. So lots and lots of things to do there. Um, brass monkey bullets, uh, Jason and team, uh, out of, out of Tennessee, uh, you know, with the, the, the primer shortage and component shortage, you know, a lot of bullet companies kind of struggled back in 2020 to provide product. And, um, it was just perfect timing that, uh, again, through Tom Castro, I'm going to throw his name out there again. So both Da Vinci and Impar- or, I mean, uh, Da Vinci and uh, Brass Monkey Bullets kind of came because of t- uh, Tom's relationship with him. So obviously I knew the name from there, explored a little bit what they were, ordered some bullets to test. Uh, they worked out phenomenally. So I've been shooting Brass Monkey here for two years now. Great product, uh, based in Tennessee. So real close to me. So I can get product really fast and he ships it lightning fast. <laughs> Most times my orders ship same day and being, you know, 180 miles away. I usually have them next day, maybe two days. So you can't beat that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, last but certainly not least is Breek Arms. Breek Arms is a company, not quite your way, but they're, they're based out of Minnesota. Uh, another American company. Uh, so they make all their parts there locally in the Minnesota area. So they do uh, the Warhammer charging handles. I'll pull this guy out here. So aside from my, my side charger, their Warhammer charging handle is what I use for my uh, normal rear charging handle. It is, you know, I've run all the charging handles through the years, Radian, BCM, uh, various others that are geared towards, you know, competition stuff. It's a tremendous product. It it ticks all those boxes again, where it's got the nice wide latch. It's easy to operate. It's truly ambi, so it's easy to operate from either side. And uh, it's an incredible value with, uh, you know, some 
sales from some of you know they carry them at Brownells and Primary Arms, or you can buy direct from Breek and they ship for free. But it's like a thirty-five to forty-dollar charging handle if you catch it on sale or using my discount code, and uh, you know, so it's like half the price. It's American-made and it's a phenomenal product. Plus, they do hand guards and muzzle devices and things like that. So they they've been a good supporter now for uh, about a year. Been on board with those guys and like most relationships should be. I was using their product before I got connected with them. I, I also just bought the product randomly because I had a new build, needed a charging handle. I think Primary Arms had a sale or, or I forget, maybe I think it was Primary Arms, but had a sale. I bought it just to try because we all like to try new gear and new things. And uh, it was phenomenal. It worked great. And the price point could not be beat. And then Breek was seeking some, uh, some shooters last summer and we got connected and been doing our thing ever since. Well, that's really cool. That's awesome that, you know, you stand behind these products and they stand behind you. Cause you know, it's always about those relationships that we build this kind of sport. You know, we can't do it. They can't do it without us. We can't do it without them. So it's kind of nice. And uh, yeah, it's always good. Good companies too. That's always fun. Now, Jason, where can they find you at on the internet? So I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is mostly family related stuff. So unless uh, you've met my family or we've sat down and drank way too many beers together, probably not going to connect with you there, but uh, you can find me on Instagram at FC Jason. It's actually FC underscore Jason. Cause somebody else took, took my handle here. That bastard, but uh, FC underscore Jason on Instagram. Um, reach out to me. If you've got any questions uh, about my you know, gear reloading, need a discount code for some bullets or some charging handles or anything like that, you can catch me on there. And uh, yeah, I'm on there way too much. So come have a chat. Well, that's ever We all spend way too much time on Instagram, but it's okay. That's how, it's it's how, too easy. That's how these things work though, right? Yep. You just spend too much time on the internet. But Jason, I want to thank you for coming on, sir. It's been a blast. It's been a fun one. Um, I've learned a lot. And I think the listeners definitely will come pull something out of this one. So thank you for your time. And listeners, thank you for watching. Until next time, get out and do the things and I will see you on the next one.